Please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us here today as we continue with our series that we've been doing for all of 2014 uh, called The Story. And if you're a visitor, uh, if you go get one of those gift bags uh, that Lisa was talking about earlier, either at the south end of the lobby, at the guest center, or the north end, in with included in that gift bag is a coupon that looks like this, and you turn this in at the Resource Center, and we will give you a free copy of the story that looks just like this, and encourage you to get a hold of this. This has been sweeping the nation, helping a lot of people connect with God's Word that have found it distant and mysterious, and they've been able to get a grasp of it, uh, or for people that have read the Bible a hundred times to get a fresh approach towards it, and would really encourage you to get a hold of this as a free gift from us if you're a visitor, and also I encourage you that if you've enjoyed it, to maybe get copies and give it to your family and friends and use it as a way to connect them with God's Word as well. Now, uh, in June, we had Christmas in June because we've been doing the summer through the New Testament. January through May, we did the Old Testament. And now June through August, we're doing the New Testament. So we had Christmas in June. Uh, We'll have Easter next Sunday, August 3rd, first Sunday in August, Uh, Easter in August, Christmas in June, and now today we'll have Good Friday in July. The title of today's study is The Darkest Hour, and what you find in Scripture is that many times God doesn't just use followers of His to fulfill His purposes. Uh, Sometimes He uses people that are not followers as tools in His hands to fulfill His purpose. We see this with the kings in the Old Testament. Uh, Usually He used Jewish kings that were following after God, but sometimes He would use a non-Jewish king like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of what is today the nation of Iraq, to fulfill His purposes. Sometimes He would use a king that wasn't a believer. We have some indications that Nebuchadnezzar was, but Darius, who was the king of what is today the nation of Iran. We have no indication that he was a believer, and yet God used him to bring his people Israel back from captivity, back to the nation of Israel again. The book of Proverbs has a wonderful verse. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he will, and we see him doing that in the Old Testament. Now, with the crucifixion story, we see him doing this with outright enemies of Jesus. We see the Old Testament high priest Caiaphas Uh, who said this one word, don't you realize, he said to his colleagues, that we've got to kill one man in order to save the nation. Now, he meant that politically. Don't you realize that we've got to kill off Jesus so he doesn't upset the apple cart and the Romans come in and take away our religious privileged position? He meant it politically. But actually, he was speaking prophetically as the high priest that year, saying, don't you realize that one man needs to die for the sins of the nation? And we see the same thing going on with the enemies of Jesus, even at the foot of the cross. Matthew 27, verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Now, they said that phrase in hatred. They said it as a way of mocking Jesus. But what they said was actually true. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Or maybe we should say he won't save himself. The assessment of Jesus' death on the cross by the religious leaders was correct. Jesus could not save himself and save us also. He could save himself and leave all of us in eternal jeopardy. 
or he could save us and lose his own life on the cross. Praise God, he chose the latter rather than the former. Anybody want to say amen to that? He chose to stay on that cross in order to save us. The algorithm of God is that God restores life to the world by the death of his son. Now the cross reveals both the holiness of God and the severity of sin. That God is holy is a foundational truth in the Bible. We've seen it from cover to cover of, of, of the story in this series. We've seen it cover to cover in the Bible. It's presented from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation that we'll cover in a few weeks, uh, the last book of the Bible. God is holy. Now, holy means to be set apart, uh, to be unique. God is totally and utterly different. Now, our holy God cannot look on evil because our sin absolutely disgusts the holiness of God. Now, I want you to know, I struggled a little bit whether to include that word in my study outline. It's a strong word. It's a word that's foreign to modern ears. It's, it's a non-politically correct word, but it is a true word, and so I left it in. Our sin disgusts the holiness of God. And the more we appreciate just how holy God is, and the more we appreciate just how our sin disgusts him, it will motivate us to work harder with the help of the Holy Spirit, with God's help, to fight against the sin in our lives. Now, we'll never eradicate it until we get to heaven. I mean, the best part of heaven, you can take all that you envision heaven to be, the the golden streets and uh, the golf courses or whatever else it is that you think of heaven as being, and I believe it'll be that and a hundred million times more than that. Take all that. To me, one of the best things about heaven is you get up in the morning, you say, God, what should I do today? And he goes, Glenn, do whatever you feel like doing. And for once, it'll be right. Glenn, you get under pressure, say whatever comes to your mind to your wife or your children. And it'll be kind, gracious. It'll be what Jesus would say. Whatever, it'll just be natural to not sin. Uh, We won't be able to sin anymore in heaven. And what a joy that, that will be. But this side of heaven, the more we realize just how holy, I mean, when we think, oh yeah, God's holy, sure, whatever. And we think, oh yeah, my sin, bad mistake, my bad my bad when we sin, my bad. You know, you know what will happen is we'll be half-hearted in our efforts to eradicate sin within our lives, to face down temptation. But the more we appreciate the holiness of God, the more we appreciate how that sin in our lives disgusts him, the more motivated we'll be on a day-by-day basis. God, with your help, I'm gonna fight against it. And yes, I will fail and you'll forgive me and I'll fall down and you'll pick me back up again. But by the grace of God, I'm gonna fight it with all my might because it breaks the heart of the one who died for me on the cross. It breaks the heart of the one who loves me. And yet this is a foreign concept today. You know, it's interesting. At the traditional service earlier, we sang a hymn, hymn number 188. It's different than was in the program called At the Cross. And I was fascinated by this because even our hymn book, which is decades old, we haven't changed out our hymn book for a long time. So this is really an old hymn book. And yet it it has still been sanitized somewhat. It has still been made to be a bit uh, politically correct. The original hymn was written by an English hymn writer by the name of Isaac Watts around the year 1700. And see if any of you are old enough like me to remember the original way this song went. In our hymn book, it goes like this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, 
and did my sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Anybody remember how it used to go? Would he devote that sacred head, anybody remember? For such a what? A worm as I. And that's been changed. Even, what, 30, 40 years ago, they changed that. And I understand that. I think there's some good reasons for that because we understand that we are made in the image of God, the imagio Deo. We, we are made in God's image, and so we should be careful not to denigrate that. We are precious in God's sight. We're made in his image. And, and this has been criticized sometimes as what they call worm theology. But you know what? I think there is a place sometimes for a little bit of worm theology. We need some worm theology in a couple of different ways. First of all, just a reminder that there is way more of a gap between us and God as there is between us and a worm. We can comprehend the ways of God about a fraction of the way that a worm can comprehend our ways. The Bible says his ways are higher than ours. They're beyond our ways. And so the problem comes not when we're smart. I think it's good to be smart. God made us smart. But when we're Smart, we think we're smarter than we actually are. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. Nothing wrong with being smart. The problem comes when we think we're smarter than we are. When we think we're more moral than God. When we think we've got right and wrong figured out more than God. When we think we can comprehend the universe and its origins and how it all holds together better than God. The problem comes when we think we're smarter than we are. My dad uh, loved education, very committed to education. He had his master's degree in the 1940s, which was an unusual thing back then and not that common. And so he loved education. But he used to say to me sometimes, hey, Glenn, see that guy over there? I said, yeah. He says, he's educated beyond his intelligence. (laughs) And we all know that phrase, don't we? Educated beyond his or her intelligence. That is, what I believe you meant by that is, they're smart, but they're, they think they're smarter than they actually are. And so a little bit of worm theology reminds us that this book is smarter than we are. The one that wrote this book is smarter than we are. We obey this book even when people around us tell us that they're smarter than that book. We follow this book regardless of what our culture says is smart. We follow this book regardless of what the people are, regardless of what we think about how smart we are. We submit ourselves to the fact that we, compared to God, are a worm beyond that. Multiply that by 100 million, the difference, the chasm between us and God and, and the worm and us. And then another way that worm theology is a little helpful dosage of that is a, is a helpful thing is worms are gross. They're disgusting. How many of you wouldn't care to eat a worm? You you watch these survival shows where they resort to eating a worm to get some protein in them. Uh, How many of you would say that's kind of gross? They're slimy. They're, they're, They're gross. And that's how our sin is to God. And the more we understand that, the more we'll grieve over it. And we won't be crushed by it because it's forgiven. That's the whole point of this message We don't have to be broken by it, but we do have to be humbled by it, and we do have to be motivated to not coddle it, but to fight it with all that we've got. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Revelation 3.16, Jesus said, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, something you'll never hear on the news, you'll never hear on Dateline or 2020, you'll never hear somebody say, you know what the real problem in the world is? It's sin. I mean, if I were to hear that on TV, I would pass out cold. If, if just said, you know, well, what the, world, the world's real problem is sin. Now, what we hear about is the need for better government and better business and better psychology and better sociology. And please don't get me wrong. Those are wonderful things. We praise God for those things. But they're not the root, the root problem. The root problem is sin. The real problem is not corrupt government. The root problem is sin. The real problem is not unethical business practices. The root problem is sin. The problem that psychology deals with uh, is, 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 is it's wonderful, and I praise God for psychology. And much of it is not related to personal sin. I think it's related to the overall sin in the world, but it's not necessarily related to personal sin. But much of it is dealing with the scars of sin. You know what the problem is? Is that we were all raised by sinners who were raised by sinners, I mean, I was raised by a sinner who was raised by a sinner, and I'm raising sinners who will produce little sinnerlings running all around. And I have little sinner grandchildren, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's the, the condition. Now, now, don't get me wrong, I praise God for good psychological approaches to dealing with, but, but the real issue is sin, and psychology deals with the scars, the hurt that comes from that sin. Same thing with sociology. The, 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 the real root that sociology deals with is the selfishness of sin. Where do societal problems come from? They come from the selfishness of sin, the sin of selfishness. I love what D.A. Carson wrote once. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our spiritual death, and so he sent us a savior. That's what we really needed. And so he sent us a savior because that was our greatest need. The holy God does not pretend that our sin is just a mental lapse or condone our sin as simple stubbornness. God hates sin and cannot turn a blind eye to it. Next page of your study outline. God will not compromise his holiness by indulging our sinful behavior. Now, God's motivation for putting commandments to curb our sin and rules to protect us from each other in our sin and boundaries uh, around ourselves so that we can't hurt each other. His motivation for all that is love. It's not revenge. It's not punishment. It's love. It's not revenge. Came across an item entitled Revenge, and I appreciate it even more now. You all know that Kimberly and I are in the middle of of, uh, three weddings, three marriages in the span of 19 weeks. And so I appreciate this even more than when I found it a while back. It's entitled Revenge. The wedding day was fast approaching. Everything was ready and nothing could dampen Jennifer's excitement, not even her parents' nasty divorce. Her mother, Sheila, finally found the perfect dress to wear and felt that she'd be the best-dressed mother of the bride ever. Unfortunately, a week later, 
Jennifer was horrified to learn that her new young stepmother had purchased the very same dress. I appreciate the depth of that terror now, you know. She asked Barbie, the new young stepmother, to exchange the dress. But Barbie refused. Absolutely not. I'm going to wear this dress. I'll look like a million in it. Jennifer told her mother, who graciously replied, Never mind, dear. After all, it's your your special day, not hers. Two weeks later, another dress was finally found. When they stopped for lunch after finding the second dress, Jennifer asked her mother, What are you going to do with the first dress? You don't have any place to wear it. Sheila, her mother, grinned and replied, Of course I do, dear. I'm wearing it to the rehearsal dinner. (laughs) Revenge is a sweet thing. It's wrong, but we do enjoy it, don't we? Well, God's motivation for rules and consequences and barriers and, and commandments, His motivation was not revenge. It wasn't punishment. It was love. Um, He he loves us. That's why he sets up boundaries where we can't destroy each other or ourselves. God's stern holiness operates from God's infinite love. God will honor both these two strong emotions, his fiery holiness and his tender love. God's holiness and love function together. If God were only holy, we would be destroyed. If God were only love, a lack of discipline and correction would destroy us. It's just like a good parent. It's that delicate balance, isn't it? If all we ever did was discipline our children, if we were only harsh with our children, we would break the spirit of our children. On the other hand, if all we do is love them without any discipline or correction, we will open the door for them to destroy themselves and others. That's why God loves us enough to give us the Ten Commandments and biblical principles and rules and consequences for our sins. It's good when we put the hand on the stove, we get burned. It's, it's good that when my heart wanders from God, I find myself hurt in some way that protects me from being hurt in a greater way. It comes from His love. And just like a good parent that balances discipline, correction, and love, so God does the same between his love and holiness. God's holiness and love combine to do something unimaginable. God becomes a human being. God as human leads a sinless life. God as human dies in the sinner's place. This is the great drama of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is where the love of God and the holiness of God come together in a powerful drama. But oh, the cruelness of the cross demonstrates the severity of our sin and just how God hates sin. You can see it in the cross. Um, There's a book I'm in the middle of right now called Killing Jesus. Fabulous book. I read the book Killing Lincoln and Killing uh, Kennedy and now this book Killing Jesus. Just a fabulous book. I'm partway through it and I was reading the other night The most common modes of killing a condemned man in the Roman Empire were hanging, burning him alive, beheading, placing him inside a bag full of scorpions, and then drowning him, and then crucifixion. As terrible as the four might be, the last was considered the worst by far. 
So even as crucifixion was now practiced throughout the Roman Empire, it was a death so horrible that it was forbidden to execute Roman citizens in this manner. So terrible that no matter what the crime of a citizen of Rome, they would not be executed that way. But Jesus was not a citizen of Rome. And so he was executed in that way. Matthew 27 From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the curtain that separated the holiest of holy places where God dwelt and where we unholy people dwelt. And so when the curtain was torn at his death, it represented the fact that through the cross, We now had access to a holy God. We now had forgiveness from a holy God. We now could develop a relationship with a holy God. And when he looked at us, he no longer saw the disgusting sin of our lives and the wreck that we have made of ourselves. He instead saw the righteousness of his son. And so the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God did it from the top to the bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, And the tombs broke open. Here's something else. Now longer did the result of our sin, spiritual death, that no longer was that the ultimate consequence, but instead it broke the tombs open for eternal life. It conquered death as well as our sin. The bodies of many holy holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. You know, we talk about the overwhelming proof for the resurrection of Jesus, how some historians say it's the most validated event in all of human history because of the number of eyewitnesses in multiple situations. Hundreds of people saw him and, and because of the results of they were willing to die for their faith because they had seen him. And there's tremendous evidence overwhelming legal evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But you know, that doesn't even count these other ones that appeared. Almost as additional confirmation, not only did people see Jesus, but they saw these resurrected people as confirmation that Jesus would do the same for us. And so when we talk about the evidence for the resurrection, we don't even include these people. This is icing on the cake, beyond the cake. But it demonstrates what he will do for us someday. It was like a first fruits of those that were risen from the dead. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. John puts it this way. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, one of 300 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, Jesus said, I am thirsty A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven 
and received by a holy God. This is the beauty of the cross. On October 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff in Detroit, Michigan, killing 155 passengers. The only one that survived out of 156 passengers, 155 died, one little girl, four-year-old Cecilia, survived. They found her walking among the wreckage, totally unhurt. Just prior to the crash, Cecilia's mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seatbelt, knelt in front of Cecilia with her arms wrapped around her daughter. Paula took the devastation of the crash, and Cecilia lived. Paula took the fall for her daughter that she loved. God sent his son, Jesus, who wrapped his arms around you and me, took the horrible fall with all of its sin so that in the midst of the wreckage of this world, we might live. God is holy and God is love. Jesus became sin as all the sins of the world were placed on God, by God, on Jesus. The sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ can now be ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we saw this in the baptism of Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago we started the ministry of Jesus with his baptism. And we asked the question, why would baptism by John the Baptist, which was a baptism was repentance for sin, why would Jesus have to be baptized? Well, several reasons. First of all, he wanted to set the example for us to be baptized. In the same way he was baptized, we follow his example and we're baptized. Another thing was he was identifying with our sin. He was identifying with sinners. And then another thing that was going on is that it was foreshadowing the cross. That in the same way he went under the water, symbolizes his death and his burial. And then when he comes out of the water, it symbolizes his resurrection from the dead. In the same way that he identified with us and our sin, now we identify with him in his death, and we die with him in his death, and we're raised again, forgiven to eternal life by his resurrection. There's another thing going on. That have you ever wished you could stand by the cross of Jesus? Do you ever wish that you could go back in time and be one of the handful that stood by the cross when everybody else ran, stood there with his mother, Mary, and with John, his beloved disciple. Do you ever think back, I wish I could go back and, and, and have the courage to stand by the cross when everybody left? That's what baptism is. Baptism is a way of showing publicly, and that can be in front of one person or more. I mean, some of the boldest Christian that ever lived, Paul, only had, we believe, the guy Ananias baptizing him to witness his baptism. Or it can be in front of hundreds as those that were baptized earlier did. But in, 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 in being baptized, this is the way to go public. This is the way to say, if I had been there, if God had, if by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I would have stood with Jesus. I stand with Jesus. He said, whoever will acknowledge me before other people, I will acknowledge him when I come back someday. But whoever does not acknowledge me, does, whoever does not own up to me, I will not say they, they're mine when I return someday. So baptism is the way that we acknowledge him. Now, you're here, I don't believe, by accident. I don't think that it's an accident that you happen to be here today. If you've never been baptized, 
Or if you'd like to rededicate yourself, maybe, uh, you know, in the same way that we renew our wedding vows sometimes, in the same way sometimes people after a tough patch in their lives where they've been wrestled and failed some things, that they, they want to make a new start with Jesus. And, and you don't need to do it all the time, but every once in a while, that's a very significant thing. But especially for those that have never been baptized, it's not an accident that you're here right now. It's not an accident you might be watching online right now. Today could be your day. You say, well, Glenn, I'm, we're not scheduled. Uh, we have 23 people that have either been baptized or are scheduled to be baptized today. You say, Glenn, I'm not scheduled to be baptized. Okay, that's okay. At the end of the 11:11 service, at the end of the next service, as soon as my sermon is done around noon, um, we're just going to have a, a worship song. We're going to go in the back. And if you'd like to be baptized, um, if you got time to run home and get your clothes, come back, fine. If not, we've got shorts, we've got t-shirts, we've got towels. Just after my sermon, you just meet over here with Pastor Brian, Pastor Brian Holland, and he'll talk to you to make sure you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you can be baptized at the end of the 11-11 service. Or, or maybe you say, well, you know, uh, I'd like a little more time to invite some family or friends or, or get my own change of clothes or something like that. We're doing the exact same thing tonight at the Hub in Claremont. That service is at 5 o'clock. And then as soon as that service is done around 6 o'clock, we're going to go right outside on the patio. We're going to have a barbecue, and we're going to have those baptismal tubs that we had at Easter at Fairplex, and we're going to have baptisms and barbecue. Is there any finer way to spend a 100-degree day than baptisms and barbecue? People are going to be jumping in even if they got baptized last week. They'll say, you know what? Rough week. I better do it again. Make sure it takes. But that's terrible theology, by the way. Terrible theology. Okay. There's no work of righteousness in baptism. It simply symbolizes that you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's an outward way to take a stand. You can receive Jesus in the quietness of your heart all on, by yourself in private. But eventually you got to go public. And baptism is the way that you go public. And so maybe at the end of the next service, or maybe tonight at, at the 5 o'clock service in Claremont, why don't you come and bring some family, friends with you, and, 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 and this could be your day. It may not be an accident that you're here uh, this morning. You know what? I, I want to do something. Um, I want to just, uh, I, we, we missed Aaron Steele. The sound wasn't there for like about half of it. And he had such a beautiful testimony I just want to show it again right now. Could we just do that? It just takes a minute, but let's watch that. I was um, born into a Christian family, but I never really took the like my faith seriously until about a year ago when I met uh, a friend that really like brought me back towards Jesus and like brought me to my faith, and I decided to start taking it like really seriously and to my heart. I want to be baptized because I want to make my faith. Um, be shown to the world like I want to be like a person that is proud to be a Christian and I don't want to be like a person that like people can question like oh that guy's a Christian but like I want people to know that I really am like a strong Christian at heart. And my favorite verse is John 14 27 and it goes peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. So pray about that will you? And uh and, and, and maybe today could be your day at the end of the 11-11 or at the end of the 5 o'clock service. Now what we want to do is pivot towards Easter. And next Sunday will be Easter Sunday here, August 3rd, Easter Sunday. 
And we're going to have a great time doing the Easter songs, Easter music. Um, I'm going to enjoy preaching on Easter because I often will preach on Easter, but I'll also tailor it for your friends that you bring, you know, because it's such an outreach day for us. So I often kind of do somewhat of Easter, but a lot of it is just the plan of salvation, how people can come to Christ. And, and so I'm looking forward just to preaching on Easter next Sunday. It's going to be a great time. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. But I just want to show this final clip, and then we'll, we'll close with our benediction. Um, when Jesus was uh, rejected on the cross, when he was forsaken, by God, because our sin was on him and God being holy. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he uh, became, our, his, our sin was on him and God as holy could not look on that. And so for the first time, there was a separation in the Godhead. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe you're here this morning and you have felt forsaken by God. Maybe you're going through something really hard right now. And you just say, my God, my God... Why have you forsaken me? And you're feeling that same thing. And the beauty and the power of the cross is that it's followed by a resurrection. And Jesus went through it so that he could know what you're experiencing. The book of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest that is unsympathetic. He's sympathetic. He's been there. He knows what you're feeling. And he conquered it on the cross. And when he rose from the grave, and that same Jesus is here as you call on his name to, to deliver you as well. It's darkest before the dawn. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's where we'll pick things up next Sunday. Let's stand for our closing benediction. The prayer room is open right over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, a physical need, spiritual need, relational need, financial need, uh, anything you'd like prayer for, our prayer team would just love to pray with you if that would be an encouragement. We have seen such miracles come out of that room in the last few months and years and weeks, and so they would just love to pray with you right in that room, right over there, if that would be an encouragement. For our benediction, I want to close with Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.